You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Happy New Year, Served Up community. Julie here. I am pleased to kick off the new year with a very special guest, Kathy Hugh, a wine journalist, wellness master with a balanced glass, and co-founder of Enolytics. Kathy shares her journey with us and how she got into hospitality as a Harvard graduate and her passion around mindful consumption through a balanced glass. A balanced glass is a forum and a community to connect global wine professionals to share and learn ways to navigate a wine career while maintaining wellness. As we start off our new year of new opportunities and choices, Kathy will inspire us all on how mindfulness can play a big part in our lives in 2022 and into the future. Now sit back, grab your favorite bubbly, and get inspired. Kathy, welcome to Served Up. We are so excited to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me. I just, I've been looking forward to this conversation so much, Julie. Thanks for having me too. Absolutely. So Kathy, as we like to do on Served Up, we like to know all about our guest personally. So you have had such an incredible career and you've done so many different things and been in so many different areas of your career. Tell us how that all started. Like what got you into it? Um, where, where were you born? Can you share a little bit about you? Absolutely. Um, I like to say that uh, I got into the wine industry when I became a parent to twin boys. And uh, it's not because they drove me to drink. That's not what happened at all. It's because my entire relationship to time changed, actually. Um, because when, you, when you're a new parent to, to twins um, and you realize that you've got 20 minutes, for example, and you've got a 20 minute window of time before they wake up from a nap or whatever it might be. Before kids, if you had 20 minutes, you would page through a magazine or, you know, have a cup of tea or something. Whereas after you've got twins and you've got 20 minutes, you're like, 20 minutes? You've got 20 minutes? Do you know what you can do in 20 minutes? You can shower. (laughs) Oh, thank God. There's so much that you can do in 20 minutes. So what I started to do was was write and and have a glass of wine, honestly. Uh, so I found that that 20 minute window wanted more and more often to be about wine, um, and to be writing about wine. And so that was sort of how my, my journey, um, with wine specifically started my, as a, as a writer, um, really it was, I promised myself that I would take a sip of wine, um, every day for a year, uh, some, I was living in Boston at the time somewhere around the Boston area. And the first blog was called 365 Days of Wine. And that's what, that's what I did. I wrote about it. I taught myself about wine 
and also started taking classes through a sip of wine a day, maybe a glass of wine a day, maybe a little more uh, than that. But basically it was a, it was a happy place. You know, I, I start, I start to giggle when I, when I think about that period of time, it was a very creative time. Um, I, I just realized how much I love wine. I love what happens when I drink it. I love what happens when the people around me drink it. It's just, I just knew that I wanted that to be part of, of my life. And prior to that, I was actually an academic. Um, I was finishing my dissertation um, on in architecture and design, actually, when I started working in restaurants. I was living in the Bay Area at the time, and I literally um, knocked on the kitchen door at Chez Panisse, and I asked them if I might work there. <laughs> and um, and the, the guy on the other side of the, of the door said, why don't you come in and let's talk about this? <laughs> and so that sort of is how that the restaurant part of my, of my history, my personal biography um, kind of started. And from there, it took a, a super fun path um, to France, to Las Vegas, to Thomas Keller, to Paris, to restaurant kitchens there, uh, both in two-star places and, um, and in, in bistros. And then um, after my kids were born, moved back to Boston. And that's when the 365 Days of Wine started as well as the entrepreneur in me, uh, started a, a small company called Red White Boston, which was about, we would sell tickets to programs um, that was happening every day somewhere in the Boston area. So from wow. there, it's been a little bit kind of off and running. That's incredible. So what were you, what were you doing? What was your role in the restaurants when you were going to all these fabulous places? What were you doing? I was working in the kitchens, actually. Um, the guy who at Chapinese who sort of, you know, said, come on and let's talk about this. My, my trial period was he, he said, you know, wash the rhubarb. (laughs) It's like, okay, I will wash the rhubarb. And if that's what you need done, that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to do. And he said that the reason that he brought me on, you know, on regular sort of beyond the trial was that I was calm in the kitchen and I stayed within my little postcard size piece of real estate that was allotted to me um, in the kitchen. And so that was, I guess, two of the things that they were looking for, particularly at Chez Panisse. And then um, I ended up going to cooking school in France. And in the meantime, my husband and I had moved to Las Vegas and uh, Chef Thomas Keller had opened his Bouchon in the Venetian in the meantime. And so that's where I landed when I came back from France. Oh, that's in, in the kitchen. I was brought on by Chef Keller to um, start up his morning service. Uh, obviously, he had transplanted a lot of uh, Bouchon from Yountville to Vegas, but they didn't have a morning service. And so he needed somebody to come in and organize it and just sort of get it off the ground. So that's what um, he hired me to do. And that's where I met um, a sommelier called Jeff Eichelberger, um, who took me under his wing and basically lined up. Um, a dozen bottles of wine on that zinc bar um, that Bouchon is so well known for and said, okay, chef, this is why we drink wine. And he just walked me through one by one. And that's where it started. That is incredible. First off to work for Thomas Keller is just incredible. Um, And to be able to take on a position like that. And then of course, like the smartest thing is to like become really good friends with the sommelier. So you were doing all the right things. I can imagine the type of things that you guys were tasting. And, you know, as somebody that when you were originally going to school and and you started working in the restaurant, it it sounds like you did it 
as a side thing, which is interesting because so many of our guests, it's that's really how they got into hospitality was as they were going to school. And then they fell in love with that side of the business. What were you going to school for? Right. It was actually, I was at the graduate school of design at Harvard. So I was studying um, architecture and landscape architecture and urban planning and the history and theory of that. And it was, I I loved it. And and I miss, I miss having students. I miss mentoring. I miss, I miss that kind of one-on-one engagement in the classroom. I definitely do. I don't miss the research part. Mm -hmm. Um, I've, I've always been a writer, so that thread has definitely continued. But it was the it was the design actually, and 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 I like to say that going to design school in a really interesting way prepares you for a life in wine, because in design school they teach you about the senses, they teach you, you know, how to look at a building and imagine the skin on the building, and how does it feel if you were to run your hand across the wall of this of this building that's about texture, right? And they teach you about noise pollution. And so that's about sound. And they teach you how to look. And so you're looking at a glass of wine and they teach you, you know, in an urban environment, you know, notice the notice the smells as you're walking down the street. So Mm -hmm. actually design school was a pretty cool kind of training ground for a life in wine. Not that I knew it at the time, but um, it ended up being in retrospect, uh, a pretty, pretty interesting training ground. Yeah, absolutely. And then to have the culinary part to it as well, just complements all of the environment that you've been exposed to. So that's so wonderful. So catch us up to today from having this incredible experience and, and where you are today. So the I, I also just want to take a, take a second and to give a shout out to my mom um, because she's a baker and she oh. <laughs> she's an amazing pastry chef, really. Like she she decorates cakes that are just unbelievable. And she would just have, she's also a logistical genius. So at the holidays, she would get these orders for like 1200 tins of cookies and she would just figure it out. And I definitely see my, my hands roll, rolling dough the way that she rolled dough. And I remember, uh, you know, she's the one who taught me about the importance of salt and she's the one who taught me how to measure and how to frankly stay calm in the kitchen and clean as you go. Mm-hmm. And the essentials that ended up being directly transferable into a restaurant kitchen. So thanks, mom. Thanks, <laughs> mom. I've learned I learned so much about how to cook from my mom and, and right? to manage a kitchen too, for sure. It would, was your mom working in the industry? Well, my mom did have um, a restaurant growing up. And so I was working in a restaurant at a very young age. She was the chef. She was the boss. She did everything. And um, I learned so much from her. And what was interesting is, you know, later in my life, I started really getting into like Food Network and watching like skilled culinary and how they cut and all that stuff. And I'm like, you know, my mom is an immigrant from South Korea. She never had any, she didn't have any education, but the way she cuts it, I'm like, my God, she does it just like the chefs, you know? And and it was almost just like a natural instinct of how she works in the kitchen. And it was the same way that I would see on Food Network that the, the trained chefs do. So that to I me was fascinating. That. I love that. And I think there's also sort of an, an economic component of growing up in an environment like that for you in, in a restaurant. And, and, and there was that perspective um, of running a kitchen, like a professional kitchen for my mom and, and my dad. This was in rural Pennsylvania. Um, and my dad was the, was the breadwinner. My, my mom was stay at home and she raised six of us. So she had eight mouths to feed every oh single goodness. day. 
on one blue collar income. And so she was, you know, she could stretch a dollar and 38 cents a meal. Let me tell yeah. you about it. That so way. she cooked everything. She got big bags of flour and made sure you had the best bread. And um, that's what they do. And, and look like it, it's, it's so enriching, right? I mean, my mom growing up, she cooked everything. You know, we'd come home from school and everything's like prepared. So we just heat it up and she worked two jobs. So we were on our own, but the food was always cooked and prepared. You know, it was, we never got packaged foods or fast food. And I always felt like I was so unlucky. And, you know, when we would go to the grocery store, it was always just the, the whole foods that she would buy. And I was so envious of my friends that got all this packaged stuff. And she would always be like, do you know how much that costs? You know, that's $5. I could buy, you know, a whole whatever for $5. So I learned that early on, you know, that's that a, that's a week, a week's worth of food right there. Like, yeah. can you, do you know what you can do with $5? It's <laughs> right? what I grew up my whole life. You want $20? Do you know how hard I had to work to get $20? I mean, that's story of my life, but, um, <laughs> that is so great to hear. So it's almost just like, you know, that the cooking part of baking, which I always say is like, bakers are really the technical cooks, right? Because it's so much chemistry and, and measurement and, and, um, you know, the, the fact that you learned that from your mom, I think definitely, um, adds a lot of your success and in, in going down that path. It's a, it's a lot of logistics. It's a lot of practicality. And it, it's interesting too, Julie, and I don't know if you found this with your mom too, but my mom would never say she was a creative person. And yet you would see these things that she would, that she would create, frankly, these, these cakes and these pies and these cookies and things like that. And you're like, are you really trying to tell me you're not a creative person? Um, and she just, I'm just, she's like, I'm just following the recipe. I'm like, okay, mom, <laughs> whatever you say, whatever you say. That is so wonderful. Yeah. And, and I think all these different, you know, trades just bring out that creativeness. Like when you talk about design and architecture, I mean, that's, it's like art, you know, and, um, and then even in the wine world, there is just so much creativity that comes with, with everything out of all the different things that you've done. And, and I know that there's a ton more, um, that you continue to do with your different businesses. What fulfills you the most? Like, where do you really get the most out of spending your time and your energy? That's a great question. Um, I, I think, to segue a little bit from the conversation around, around our moms and around sort of our homes and where we're coming from. Um, one of the things that I find very fulfilling as a writer, and I can maybe um, then talk about as an entrepreneur, but as a writer coming from the environment that I came from, very blue collar, very looking for the practical and the, and the logistics and how do you, how do you actually make something work? It's not sort of you're not thinking big picture, you're thinking nuts and bolts, you're thinking operationally, right? I feel like when I, when I walk into a restaurant or I walk into a winery, absolutely, I'm, I'm there to appreciate the experience and appreciate the food and appreciate the wine and appreciate uh, the technique. But I'm, I've also got my eye out for that working stiff in the kitchen who's been peeling onions for the past 12 months, 12 hours or whatever it might be. So I also... When, when I started writing about wine, that was my, that was my lens um, into the industry was the, the, the working person's point of view. Um, my first book was called seeing the world through the lens of a wine glass. 
hungry for wine, seeing the world through the lens of a wine glass. And that was, there's no accident that I was following the, the vineyard workers. Um, cause that was my, my point of reference and my point of orientation. And so I feel like that, that definitely fed into my spirit as a, as an entrepreneur, um, and sort of looking when everybody else was looking over here, I was looking over there and everybody else was looking sort of at the star power winemaker. I was looking at the cellar rat or whatever it might've been. Um, I feel like the same thing happened as an entrepreneur when everybody else was talking about social media, I was looking at the data behind the social media that definitely informed both of those experiences at the same time though. And this gets to a balanced glass. And uh, when Rebecca Hopkins founded it uh, four years ago or so now, she, I, I responded to it as somebody who is, who wants to pay attention to the reality and the day-to-day difficulties that those of us in the industry face. Um, I responded to it definitely as, uh, as a mindful person, as a meditation teacher. I like to say that a balanced glass outed me as a spiritual person in the wine industry. So, <laughs> so that is a uh, part of when, when Beck Hopkins uh, started it and she said, I, I really want to do this, this project, a balanced glass and um, she was invited by Deborah Brenner of Women of the Wine and Spirits in the in the annual conference one year to have a a mindful sort of kickoff to the beginning of the conference. And so we actually had a, a room dedicated to wellness resources, which was amazing. And there was also a period of time where the before the conference started, uh, when when Deborah invited Beck to sort of share some uh, some mindful techniques for the participants. And Beck said, I really want to do this, but I, I need you to do it with me because she said, I'll do the breath work and you do the meditation. And so that's what we did. And that was how the collaboration started in terms of co-creating the content. Um, Beck's idea, Beck's initiative, her intellectual property, um, but I was I was there to contribute um, from the from the meditative part and the mindfulness part too. Oh, that is such a wonder. That's such a beautiful story of of how the two of you connected. So, could you tell us a little bit more about a balanced glass for our listeners that you know this might be the first time that they're hearing of it? Totally. Um, so, a balanced glass, um, and it's just abalancedglass.com. It's a online and as in person as much as possible community dedicated uh, to those of us in the industry who make a concerted effort to be well when alcohol is at the center of our work. And wellness means physical wellness. It means emotional wellness. It means psychological wellness. It means spiritual wellness. And there is uh, every, so it's a, it's a website. It's also a community. There are programs. Um, there's a weekly newsletter uh, that goes out every Friday morning, actually. And uh, what's super fun about that is that the newsletter has a piece of content at the at the front, and either Beck or I or a guest contributor writes about some salient, relevant topic around mindfulness and wellness in the wine and spirits industry. So that's where the the weekly newsletter and the blog post starts. Um, and then there's uh, reading sort of relevant articles that have crossed our paths. So we try to be a resource um, and, and a reference point 
uh, to share really interesting, provocative pieces on the topic of wellness and wine. And then there's a featured community profile. Um, and we're, we've done this, we've been doing this for four years now. So it's more than 150, maybe almost 175 people, colleagues and friends within the industry and who, who we've noticed or who have crossed our paths, who are in some way prioritizing health, prioritizing wellness. And so we have a, a picture of them and they, uh, they answer the same um, series of questions, including how do, you, how do you keep it together? What are your biggest challenges? And what inspires you? So these are these are the questions, and it's been so uh, nourishing, I guess, to know that there's almost 200 people also making concerted efforts to be well when alcohol is at the center of our work. Yes, I I agree. I think it is it is so important, you know. And when you tell people you're in the alcohol industry, they're you know just thinking that all we're doing is drinking and it's just a party all the time, but it is, it it is a lifestyle. And just because, um, we're in the alcohol industry does not mean that you need to consume more than others. And, you know, I think the pandemic is a topic that's come up is that, you know, alcohol abuse has increased, um, due to the pandemic and, you know, what are your thoughts on that being in the business for years? So you've, or sorry, in um, leading balance class for four years, you know, you've been talking about the topic prior to COVID and now during COVID. And I guess we're not even post COVID we're we're living in a COVID world. What have you taken away from that? Well, we were given the chance, Beck Hopkins and I were given the chance to present at the Wine to Wine uh, business forum uh, that is uh, organized by Stevie Kim and her team in Verona in Italy. Mm. Um, it's sort of the, the business forum of Vin Italy. Uh, it, was, it was both in person and virtual this year, but Beck and I presented um, virtually and we, we used it as an opportunity uh, to ask the question, is it possible to be well? In this industry, can can working in wine actually be good for you? And so we put together a survey of, of our community, uh, anonymous, voluntary, um, and asked a lot of open-ended questions. Um, and it really ended up being Julie like a like a focus group. And so people took. We were humbled by how many people responded and how many people took the time to really tell us how they're how they're doing. It was a check-in. And so a couple of things that, that, we, that we asked were, are you better now than you were prior to COVID? How's your health? How's your health now relative to COVID? And I was, I was so surprised by this. And, and let's recognize that this was a self-selected group, people who are already prioritizing wellness in their life. But people said that they're actually better now than they were prior to COVID. And we sort of dug a little deeper into that. And one of the reasons is that they they use COVID as an opportunity to prioritize self-care. And so it became a lot about mindful consumption and using the time. And, and to your point earlier, absolutely, you know, there was overconsumption. I'm not sort of pretending that that there wasn't. Um, but the the people who responded to the balance class survey, this is what they were they were saying to us, is that um mindful consumption and individual care around alcohol became a priority. And maybe because it just became so clear that it had to be during COVID. So that was one big takeaways. 
The second big takeaway uh, from the survey was sort of the next concentric circle out, which was we want that wellness, that mindful consumption, that individual self-care to be part of our workplace now more than we did before. So there's sort of the, the, the core, the individual, and then the workplace is sort of the next moment out. And then the third major takeaway is that we are looking more, for more leadership to step up and be transparent about their own initiatives and their own way of self-care so that the people who work with them can follow that example so that it becomes more of a, it becomes more routine. It becomes more acceptable or accepted um, that you're going to work out, you know, after lunch, or you're going to take a mental health day, you're going to do whatever it might be. So those interestingly were three primary takeaways at three different levels, the individual and taking the, that self-care to work as a second level. And then at work, looking more and more to leadership to, um, to take the lead in modeling that behavior and making it okay for the rest of us. Yeah, that, that really um, makes a lot of sense. And I could personally relate to that um, with COVID. So what are some of the examples of, you know, when you, when you do these surveys or um, do the write-ups of the different industry leaders, what are some of the biggest takeaways of how they incorporate wellness into, into their lives? Some of the, um, some of the things, and, and I love the range of what people have, the featured community profiles have brought up as issues around wellness in the industry. Definitely um, drinking too much, too many working, you know, too many long haul flights, um, too much expectation uh, of drinking um, for, uh, in order to sort of keep up with, uh, with who's drinking the most. But then we also see the pendulum swing in the other direction. Just two weeks ago, uh, Rachel Terrazas, um, formerly with Wine and Spirits uh, magazine, um, she wrote about the sober press trip and how and how that is possible, actually. Uh, then the first line of her piece was, my first day sober was February 20th, 2020. And so she wrote about what it's like to have been a wine writer, you know, in the industry, uh, having these different roles, and then um, recognizing that it was best for her to become sober. And now still, and, but now what's the reality of that, especially coming out of COVID? How do you, how do you live as a wine writer when you're actually not, you're no longer drinking? So she was, and to her credit, very candid around um, what that looks like from a, from a press trip point of view is sort of the example that she used. And she offered some, uh, some advice for, um, for how to do that. And one of the pieces of advice that sticks in my head is that uh, your sober journey and your decisions are yours and yours alone. They're not anybody else's to make on your behalf. So that goes, I think, speaks to the point of the survey that I was mentioning earlier, which is around taking individual responsibility for consuming mindfully. Yeah. And, and I think you bring up such a great point because that, that is something that comes up in our industry that when you're out or you're having networking events or supplier events, and if you don't want to drink, it's almost taboo. There's a lot of peer pressure. And the one thing I notice it's always awkward are 
are young moms that are newly pregnant and they, they still haven't announced it and they don't want to drink. They don't even want to fake taste. Right. So what do you suggest to those that might not want to drink, or maybe they just want one and there's, you know, they get shamed for nursing their drink. You know, what, what are your thoughts on how to handle those type of situations? Yeah. Well, this is another, another topic that has been, that's gotten some really, really great traction um, is the, the sober curious, the low alcohol and the no alcohol um, trend and, and uh, groundswell of interest in those. And I would also point to um, what, what do you do about it uh, to just answer your question. Uh, one of our featured community profile members is Kiata Mercer here in Atlanta. She is, she's amazing. She is, sorry, Atlanta is, is where I live. Um, and she's a mixologist, uh, a spirits professional, really unbelievable what she's doing. She started actually an urban garden um, here in Atlanta called Sip of Paradise, which is totally meant to uh, provide an open green space for, for coworkers and colleagues and friends in the industry. And also to give them literally the ground to plant their ingredients in for their cocktails. She's extraordinary. It's wonderful. So one of the things that she does and that she advocates for is to have the low or no alcohol option of a cocktail look exactly the same as mm -hmm. the alcohol version of a cocktail. And to have both of those options available and to have it not be so visible that you're ordering one and not the other. So she has put herself in the shoes of that young mom that you're talking about, or that newly pregnant woman that you're talking about, Julie, mm -hmm. who doesn't want to make it known, but yet also doesn't want to consume alcohol. Mm -hmm. Definitely not late at night and definitely not at a bar uh, when you're newly pregnant. So that's, um, that's one example that I feel like has resonated um, and certainly hits home for me. Yeah, it's, you know, and I, and I love the, the no elk and, and the low elk trend that's been continuing as people become more aware of their health and, and prioritize wellness. And I do start I'm seeing it all the time, you know, going out to restaurants, there's always kind of that non-alk um, cocktail options. And, and I commend any beverage director that, that really looks into that, you know, back, back to that is especially when consuming wine, it's not as easy, right? Especially when it's just an amazing bottle of wine that's just been brought to the table and it's being passed around. I know that, I mean, I personally have done that is you just kind of leave the glass sitting there half full, but you don't say that you're not taking any, right? Right. And that that's painful on a lot of different levels um, for, yeah. <laughs> for those of us who love an amazing bottle of wine. I mean, we're, we are in this industry because for a reason, and, you know, oftentimes it's because we love wine. Um, and so to, to leave that, that glass or, you know, to not partake in that really special bottle that someone has probably just generously opened is, is tough and no, you know, no doubt about it. But I think it's also a moment if you, and sometimes you, you recognize that it's happening, like for somebody else around you, and sometimes you don't, but when yeah. you recognize that it's happening, um, do you somehow uh, gesture to that person that, that you see that and, and you're on their side and that's great. Like thumbs up, 
and I got you. And you're like, I'm, you know, it's, it's a, it's a safe space to share that we, you know, and maybe that maybe you're going to drink less because of it. I feel like there's a lot of unspoken language, unspoken communication that goes on that I personally have seen and, and participated in when I notice that people are leaving that really special bottle, you know, half, or yeah. that really special glass half consumed. There's a, there's a reason for that. And so it's a question of being mindful, not only when the glass is yours, but also the other glasses at the table. Yeah. I'm usually the one that sneaks over and grabs their glass when nobody's looking and dumps it into mine. Is that what you do? I'm not going to lie. I've done that a few All times. Right. <laughs> now I know the next time we have dinner together, Julie. <laughs> if you're, if you're not drinking it fast enough, no, I'm just joking, but I have actually saved some of, some of my, um, newly pregnant friends because they, they don't want to announce it. They don't want to draw attention. So, you know, we'll just kind of, but, but that was the question I was going to ask is as leaders in this industry, whether you're regardless of what channel you're in, you know, whether you're in the restaurant in the bar distributor, you know, what can you do as leaders to just make sure that it is a very comfortable, inclusive, non-judge judging environment when you are consuming together? You know, one of the questions that I that has sort of came come up for me as a result of the the survey from the balance class is how many of us can can name or identify somebody that we work with, or some our manager or a leader in, in our in our different industries, or even ourselves, have we actually said it's okay to not get drunk? Like it's okay to not drink too much. It's okay if you want to pass on on a tasting. It's okay that you don't stay out until two in the morning, right? Like had, had, how many of us have actually either said that ourselves or heard our managers or leadership in our company say, say as much. Yeah. One of my, one of my teachers um, says that the hardest and kind of most challenging gesture in all of yoga is to take the pointer finger that is usually pointing at somebody else and turn it back on yourself. Mm -hmm. What have I done? What have I done to either contribute to this problem or to help solve it? So I, so that is um, when that, when that topic came up through the, through the survey for a balanced glass, you know, that was one of my, one of my questions in response was, do we ourselves know that we have stated either publicly or through our own behavior or through social media channels that it's a that it's okay to not overconsume. And and it's true if somebody's not drinking tonight, that's okay. You can still be out there enjoying yourself, having fun, and it doesn't mean that you need to be consuming the entire time. And I think that that does need to be normalized, um, especially with expectations in our industry. I mean, you know, with the idea that being somebody that's always worked in really in the on-premise, a big part of my career, um, especially growing, you know, in the beginning as a salesperson, there was this expectation that if you're not out late at night or you're a mother and you have kids and you can't be out late at night, you can't progress in your sales career. And I'm always the first to shut that down because even before I had kids, all my business was managed during the day. You know, once lineup begins, I can't 
sell anything to my customer. I can go visit them and have a drink at their bar and say hello and show them that I'm out and about, but that's not what they needed me for. They needed me in the morning to make sure that they got their product and they needed me to come in when they were free before they start their shift to see what new opportunities there are and how we can service them. Um, you know, so how do we just change that culture? So it's not just about you're not doing your job because you're out all the time drinking and that it is taken like a serious professionalism. I think that it's, um, I think, I think you're doing it, Julie. I mean, I, I think you're inviting the conversation as we're doing right now, but you're also embodying this, this behavior, like literally like you and your peers and, and people like you who are, who are sensitive and aware and alert and proactive enough to say like, look, this, this behavior needs to shift. It doesn't, we're not, we're not pretending that, that sales don't happen sales only happen over the phone or sales happen only when the kids are at, at daycare or whatever. Like nobody's saying that, that there, I think that the shift in, in normalizing the behavior that's realistic for women, for working moms, uh, for, for men who don't want to drink um, or drink so much or drink late, so late at night, you know, six nights a week or whatever, recognizing that, that, behavior is starting to become outdated, like outmoded. And that there's just, there's different people. There's, it's, it's a different profile of worker in the industry now than it used to be, which means it's a different reality. It doesn't mean that the, the industry itself is, is going to change and people aren't going to stop doing dinner service, but it does mean that the, the expectations can be adjusted. We're creative people. We can make this work. Like, it's not that it's impossible to figure it out. People have figured it out. People continue to figure it out. You continue to figure it out. You continue to model the behavior. So I feel like the more that um, sort of the, the dinosaurs of the industry and the dinosaur thinking of the industry, frankly, sort of become extinct, then I do think that the landscape of the industry is going to become more more real and more reflective of our actual population. I couldn't agree more. And I do believe that, that we're making that progress. And I know we're all doing the work to, to do that. And, you know, speaking about the diversity of the industry and, you know, specifically around the wine industry, how do you feel about where the wine industry is today? Um, there's obviously a lot of news this week with the Court of Master Sommeliers. And, you know, what are your thoughts around where we are today in the industry, um, specifically around the wine industry and where you see us in the future with everything happening? This week, yes, and absolutely to your point about the news this week about the court and the and the the six plus one um, psalms who will, who will never be master psalms again, and the also this week, um, ironically, one of the articles that I posted on Forbes was called and I'll, I'll get the title not exactly right, but um, ten things that men in wine have said to me recently, and cue the head tilt. Ooh, we've got to read that one. Right? <laughs> so I, okay, I confess to a slight bit of clickbait there in the title. However, I really wanted people to read what was in what these 10 things were that men and wine have said to me. And one of them, Julie, was in the first one that I listed 
was uh, someone who absolutely identifies as a privileged white male. And what he said to me was he purposely seeks out young women who are trying to return to work after having a baby. He said, I I don't want to draw attention to it. He said, I don't even want to go on the record as saying it, but I know that it's what my company stands for. And so that is, you know, and, and one that's kind of one extreme of the current dynamic and the current landscape of gender and politics and power dynamics right now in the industry. And then the course master sommeliers is another at the other extreme. So I feel like there's definitely both. I feel like there's a pendulum swing between the two. And I also feel like there's, there's a, there's a recalibration happening. Um, But I also feel like it's important um, to recognize the people who are self-aware enough uh, to say, I don't want to draw attention to this for various reasons, uh, but I know that it's what we stand for. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, it's very unfortunate, the news coming out of the quartermaster. I mean, I've gone through the program. I'm, you know, got my certification and, and I just know how hard so many men and women work to get that certification, right? To become certified, to become advanced, and then for their master sommeliers. And I feel more for for all of those that, you know, have to be associated with a few characters that just took that, you know, that privilege to another level. And and but then, you know, we don't talk enough about all of the other leaders that that have privilege that have really used it to help others and continue to do so. I've had many champions throughout my career and I, and I still do, um, which is what gives me hope for this new industry. But I think unless we really talk about what has happened and what is the reasoning, we can't just say, okay, we call these people out. It's moved on. Everything's going to be better now. I feel like we really have to face the actual um, issues. And and another thing that's really come up in the wine industry is is really looking at you know some of the the roots to the American wine industry, right? And and even like the Chinese contribution, um, specifically in Sonoma and Napa, and how they're not recognized. And I think Sonoma and there's a couple wineries now starting to bring it to attention. I believe like Buena Vista. And I was shocked. I mean, I've, I've had so much wine education the last 14 years in my career, um, certified some, and I never studied um, the Chinese contribution in Sonoma, Napa, and the fact that they literally got chased out and starved out of town. And, you know, why are we not hearing more about um, those things, right? And, and really being able to to dig in deep so that we can truly make change uh, for the future. What are your thoughts on that? Literally either got chased out or were put to work to build buildings or to build the railroads or to build sort of the infrastructure upon which the wine industry has built, has been built. So, so yes. And I know exactly sort of that I can, I can picture the visuals that you're talking about, Julie. And why, why can I only picture that at one winery? Right. And why can I, why is there not more information around it? Um, So I completely agree with you. And that's, um, (laughs) there's so much education that can be shared 
and created and researched. And maybe this is part of what of what you're doing and sort of the initiatives that you're helping to to lead and helping to put into place. I, I would love to hear more about those, about the DEI initiatives that that you are spearheading because you have this sort of insider perspective. You've been there, you've done that, you know what these other people are going through. So now that you have you are shifting, you're at this pivot point um, of your of your trajectory, of your uh, your rise through your career. What what do you think is is most important for people in your position to communicate and to sort of transfer and put out there? Yeah, I think it's something that I've gone through personally over the last couple of years is to just really you know speak your speak your mind, speak your perspective, speak your point of view, um, and and that was something that I struggled with for a long time because. For me, nobody wants to know your perspective, your point of view. Just do the job, get it done, and do it to the best of your ability and over deliver. And that's helped me get to um, a lot of milestones in my career. But I think in the last couple of years, it's, you know, if if we don't speak up, if we don't bring awareness to some of these um, systemic biases and and what we deal with, um, you know, in life, but specifically our industry, how will we ever change that dinosaur thinking? Right? Is is we've got to bring another perspective. We've got to bring new ideas, and that's something that I commit. I'm committed to, and and as people bring you know, things up to us. And that's what we want to do on served up. It's just, let's hear everybody's stories. I let's hear their perspectives. You know, what, where do you find that you, you know, can contribute the most with what you bring to the table? And, and I feel like the more that we peel back the onion, we realize there's a lot to learn. And one of the things too, Julie, to, to sort of bring, um, our earlier part of this conversation kind of around full circle is that we, it sounds like we've both been, been raised and mentored by very strong, very impactful women. Would they have spoken up? Would they, if they were in our shoes, would they, or did they throughout their life speak up? And did they, did they model the speaking up behavior? I, I'm not so sure. I, I, mine did Mm -hmm. in terms of, uh, sort of, for as amazing and as strong and as smart as my mom is, she also was a woman of her time, a woman of her, her time period. So I feel like there's there's a recognition that happens that you're like, well, okay, so yes, I I, I model and I respect this woman's behavior, but I'm also not her. And I'm mm-hmm. not going to completely do everything that she did or behave in the way that she behaved. And so there is, I think, a sense of compassion that needs to happen too, that that takes a long time to recover from or a long time to retrain behaviors that we have internalized, generationally speaking. So I think that there needs to be some um, some gentle acceptance and some compassion around that as well. We're all still learning. We're all doing our best that we can. Yeah. So there's a lot to unlearn. There's a lot to relearn. And someone said to me uh, the other day, it's not about, do you win or lose? It's about, do you win or learn? Mm-hmm. And learning, I feel like is, is definitely where we recognize we are right now. Yes. And, and that's what it starts with is, is curiosity. 
especially around the topic that, you know, everybody brings up around like cultural appropriation or people are scared to say anything these days because it could be taken the wrong way. It's like, oh, you know, what you just said is, um, you know, it's like with the Asian, like the minority myth and, and, you know, but I would like, I was giving you a compliment. Well, no, it's actually, you know, it's a bias. And so I do think there's a lot of that where everybody is just so afraid of words, you know, and, but that's not what I meant, but that's what you said. And, and I think we need to get to the point where we can just have open and honest conversation and just share stories without judging. And the more that we talk about them and we talk about those different difficult topics that none none of us want to believe happened or, you know, existed, the more that we could kind of heal together and, and move forward with the different perspectives and point of views. There's definitely um, a lot of fear. I think a lot of fear about over words. There's a lot of fear about, about saying something for, for fear of, of it coming out wrong or it being misconstrued that has definitely happened to me. And I know I've been on the wrong side of that for Mm -hmm. sure. And it's, um, did I learn from it? Yes. Were people hurt along the way? Also? Yes. Is a mistake I'll ever make again. Here's hoping not like I, I know that I, that I'm committed to it, not, but it wasn't, it, it was, it was learning and, it was, it's difficult. And it, it was absolutely a growing pain, not one I'm in a, any hurry to relive or mm-hmm. to, you know, or to experience or to see, but to your point, those are exactly the kind of conversations uh, that need to happen. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, and where do you see kind of the future of this industry and balanced glass, you know, in the next two to five years? I, we normally say like five years, but I feel like five years is so long away. <laughs> like it's, it's weird. I feel like time is at a standstill and it's flying, um, but so much change can happen within a year, within months. So where do you see balanced glass and, and your contribution to this industry in, in let's say the next two years? It's a, it's a great question now, especially related to, to COVID. I feel like COVID has put us all in a time warp. Like we don't know what's time. Like we don't, yeah. we don't understand what time is anymore. I don't, I don't know. Um, Beck Hopkins and I have had long conversations, long sort of road trips <laughs> where this is the topic of conversation. What is ABG 2.0? Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's, um, there's a lot of room, certainly for education. There's a lot of room potentially even for certification around mindful consumption or around, you know, a guidebook or around programming for sure. Um, And definitely opportunities to share what we have learned and to share what we know, and also to partner with mental health professionals, people who do this for a living, to partner with, um, with people who work in sobriety for a living. Uh, Beck and I, we're, we're not any of those things. Um, but we we have created and cultivated this community as a safe place to talk about them. And so how can we leverage that in order to bring more people sort of up to speed with everything that's been happening? I think it's such important work that you're doing and speaking on behalf of you know, somebody that is employed as, as a distributor, and that's been my pretty much, you know, majority of my career. 
you know, based on our three-tier system, it is our, we have a big fiduciary responsibility to advocate for responsible consumption, um, specifically around ensuring that people that are consuming our product are of legal age. And so we are involved in a lot of organizations that um, help prevent underage drinking. And but I feel like there's still more we can do in regards to responsible consumption. What are some ideas that you have that as distributors, as leaders in the industry, what can we do more of as an organization to, to drive that message home? Well, one of the, and again, this goes back to that, to that lesson around, you know, pointing outward or pointing inward, right? What can, what can I do? What can we do, you know, as a, as an organization, uh, one of the things that that's worth uh, exploring and teasing out further is education for employees, education for colleagues, sort of internal sort of industry education. Uh, to your point, Julia, about the fiduciary responsibility, it comes down to also to the longevity of the career. You've got 14 years in the industry. If you were to say just, you know, uh, wine and spirits is no longer a welcoming industry for me. Like your 14 years of history and experience and knowledge and expertise walks out the door. So what can the industry do for ourselves? Kind of start at home and create programming or create education or create the culture of mindful consumption. And then how can we then take it out into our, our customers and into, into the consumers. I feel like also though, there's something to be said for mindful consumption programmatically. I was involved with a champagne tasting by Champagne on Rio. They had actually enlisted um, a psychologist who works um, actually in Southern California uh, to create a mindful consumption tasting essentially. The way that WSET has their tasting notes, um, he kind of appropriated it to tasting mindfully. And it, 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 the biggest difference is that it takes a long time to take to taste a glass of champagne, right? Like you're not just sort of sipping it and like moving on. Like here you are going through those that sensory analysis a glass at a time and sort of a sense at a time. Um, and it takes a while, um, but that is... It's, it's established, Champagne on Mio invested in this program to, to get it out there. But is there a similar one for spirits? Is there a similar one for beer? Is there a similar one for, uh, for different segments or different categories within the industry? So I think that's also an opportunity. Uh, I, for- yeah, I love that. Um, and I'm going to remember that it's mindful consumption because I, I do believe it's more um, real to the issue is being mindful, right? When you say responsible, that could vary depending on who you ask and what's responsible and what's not. I love the idea of mindful consumption. And now you've got my mind thinking of like different programming that you can do in regards to mindful consumption and, and mindful tasting. And hundred percent, when you have an amazing glass of wine or an amazing bourbon or an amazing tequila, you just want to really mindfully 
taste it and smell it and really think. And, you know, that's where all the conversations come. And, and when you could really, you know, to your point earlier, think about the people in the vineyard that worked on the product or what was the vintage and what was the weather. So I think you definitely have something going there. And then I think even more importantly is that internal education. You know, I didn't really think of that because we're always so consumer facing and talking about our community. But if we don't bring that education and that awareness to our internal family, which can then branch out to the families at home, you know, that that's really where the groundwork needs to happen. And, and is that something that you guys offer with the balance glass is to do internal type of trainings and, and create a program? It's something, it's something under development, I would say for ABG 2.0. So we're actively looking for, for partnerships for this to happen with, with mental health professionals, with, you know, people who have the skill set and the training and the certification to, uh, to make that a reality. But also just personally during COVID, when I would be asked to do virtual tastings for retirement parties or something like that, and people would get their gift pack and it would be four bottles. They'd be like, woohoo, we're going to drink four bottles of wine tonight. But by the time that we sort of did the, the mindful consumption exercise with even the first glass, it was really clear that we were not going to drink much of those four bottles. We were going to drink maybe two glasses, like maybe half glass of each, but it was going to be, it was going to be interesting. And it was just going to, it was going to be mindful. And we were going to talk about a whole lot of the other topics that are influencing our industry from a market perspective, from just an influence perspective, from a social perspective as well. Well, I love those ideas. And I think that we've got a lot of opportunities to continue, you know, bringing awareness to mindful consumption, a balanced glass. And I know you've got so many different things that you work on and, um, and that you contribute to. And I just think that it's so noble that you commit so much of your time um, to this cause. So thank you for that. And Kathy, thank you for joining us on Served Up. And we look forward to just, you know, continuing this journey together with you. Such a pleasure. And thank you for answering my questions in response to, I don't know how often that happens, but I can't <laughs> sort of be in a conversation with somebody and not ask questions. So thanks for being open to that. Absolutely. I was like, no, you can't turn the interview around, but that's okay. <laughs> hey, anything goes on served up. So thank you so much, Kathy. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers! <laughs>